everyone, and welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also the executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find more information about our organization at chicagojustice.org. We are very happy uh, that we have 47th Ward Alderman Matt Martin, first termer, with us today to discuss what's going on with the Community Commission, Community Council, um, depending on how you want to phrase it, basically trying to add this extra layer of oversight on the Chicago Police Department. And we're now five years in and we still don't have it. And actually, yeah, five years, uh, almost six years, actually, from the release of the Laquan McDonald table, uh, tape. Okay, just a quick uh, notes about what's coming up. On this show in the coming days, on Friday, Mick Dumkey talking about a story, the murder Chicago did not want to solve. That's on Friday, McDumkey from ProPublica. On Monday, this coming Monday, we talk about the officer support system. We have Bob Boyk, executive director of CPD's Office of Constitutional Policing, and Dylan Fitzpatrick and Maggie Goodrich from the University of Chicago. And they're talking about the officer support system. Another name in previous years was early warning system, um, but it was created by the crime lab. And we're going to talk to them about what it is, what it does, and what that, how that may help officers. On Monday, the 22nd, we have 49th Ward Alderman Maria Haddon um, talking about the Anjanette Young Ordinance. And on the Wednesday, March 24th, we have 20th Ward Alderman Jeanette Taylor, and she's going to be talking about the pressure by the police departments and the district commanders in her area to use menu money, money going for usually uh, fixing streets and sidewalks, parks, things like that, but being pressured to use it for cameras, to purchase uh, police cameras and license plate readers for her area. Um, in my view, I've heard of this happening for years, but in my view right now, this is a, certainly a reaction um, to the issues the city has right now with carjackings. So in our first segment today, we're going to talk about oh, what has been the saga. I guess that's the best way to say it. It's been ongoing since the November 2015 release of the Laquan McDonald murder tape. Um, two out of that time period came several proposals for reform. Uh, one of them, or two of them that did pass in, in 16, was uh, COPA, the Citizen Office of Police Accountability, and the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General. Those two um, oversight mechanisms passed the city council um, with ROM support. I was involved in helping write that. The Deputy Public Safety Inspector General's office or an auditor's office was actually my idea at the beginning. During that time, GAPA, the Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability, and um, CPAC, what is called, uh, they're both acronyms, Civilian Police Accountability Council. These two ideas of some kind of civilian council would have some level of oversight over the police department and actually running the police department were born. Rom tried to pass two different versions of those. Um, I sat, I stood with Mayor Lightfoot and a bunch of other reformers asking Rom not to pass them, uh, to pass his versions. He tried to substitute them in, something we'll talk about in a minute because it's being repeated, um, and he didn't. And also he tried to push getting GAPA passed and the Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability urged the mayor's office to take their time and to let uh, GAPA go back throughout their communities and get community input on what the powers of this community commission should be. GAPA um, originally wanted the power to hire or at least significant impact on the hiring and firing of the superintendent. CPAC wanted that outright. 
Um, they wanted outright control over the police department, over the hiring, firing of the head of then COPA or IPRA and then now COPA. Uh, the same thing with the police board. Um, CPAC is definitely the more militant of the two versions. Um, I'm on the record. I have an op-ed in Cranes. That's probably about a year to two years old now because time, I can't really tell anymore. Um, I am definitely a supporter of the GAPA version, or at least the GAPA version of a couple years ago. They have changed um, pretty consistently over the time. Um, so what is actually in them right now, even they've been introduced again, but what's in them since they've changed, they've been introduced because there continues to be talks between these groups to some degree in the mayor. And also we have issues around the mayor, Mayor Lightfoot, cutting off. Um, well, first of all, let me go back to, if you're interested in learning more about GAP or the Grassroots of Police Accountability's version, um, Eric, I think we have an image. You can go to our YouTube channel. We have an interview with Desmond Howard talking about, um, at least at that point a few months ago, what was in the GAPA ordinance. Um, you can hear it straight from the Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability about what's in there, at least what was in there at that time. Since that time, how the mayor has decided to go her own way and put in, submit her own ordinance and kind of cut off talks with the GAPA and CPAC people, which may not have been the best idea, we'll ask Alderman Martin what he thinks about that, in that there has been the failure to um, pass something has basically motivated the GAPA and uh, CPAC groups of organizations and individuals to kind of come together and start talking of trying to merge their ordinances. Um, this is what you get from the media. There's not a lot going on about what is happening behind these closed doors. So we don't really know. We're going to get into it uh, with Alder Martin in just a minute. But first, I want to talk to you this Wednesday, every Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Central in Chicago. There is the, well, it's everywhere around the country and actually around the world. We have a couple people from India and as well in Canada checking in. It's a CJP nation meeting. It's our advocacy wing of our organization. We have 150 people involved now. So they're doing crowdsource research projects, social media ambassadors. We're going to get into legislation activity. I've heard there's a possibility of some movement on our police settlement and transparency ordinance trying to realign how the city responds to settlements and judgments against the Chicago Police Department. So if you're interested in getting involved, there's a link in the chat that's been put up. You can join us tonight at 7 p.m. Central after this show. Um, and if you're interested, I think there's also another image. If you're interested in sponsoring this show, you can go to the link that's also going to be in the chat and, and drop a sponsorship, drop us a donation. And also corporate sponsors, uh, email us at info at chicagojustice.org, and we will get in, uh, you information about corporate sponsorship. Anything we can have to help support us would be great. We're a nonprofit. This is all done uh, on the goodness of our, our time and effort, and we're trying to uh, eke out a living at the same time. Really quickly before we get to the alderman, uh, we have a um, an ongoing series we started about looking at how the media outlets, the five major, seven major ones, the five TV stations, thank you, Eric, for putting that up, and the two uh, newspapers, the Trip and Sun-Times, how they cover weekend gun violence. Um, so this is basically done once a week, usually posted on Mondays. This one got posted early on Tuesday. But it's an interesting analysis to look at how the mechanics of this is working, what stations or news outlets aren't covering it, what um, we're going to start adding next week about what... Um, what shootings or homicides get covered and what don't. Um, so it's really interesting. Go to our website at chicagojustice.org to find it. Okay. 
Um, I want to welcome Alderman Martin. Thank you so much for taking the time, Alderman. I really appreciate it. Really a pleasure joining you, Tracy. Thanks for having me. So for those who don't know your background, can you give us a little bit of your, um, I guess, work history? What, you know, what, what were you doing before becoming an alderman and why are you, why did you run and why are you here? Uh, great question. And all of those are connected because the job I had before being an alder person was a civil rights lawyer at the Illinois Attorney General's office. And when I was there, the biggest issue that I worked on was police reform. Our office sued the city of Chicago and the police department to bring about the consent decree, which ultimately I helped write. Um, it was a big reason why I decided to run, because in doing that sort of work, looking back at decade after decade of um, uh, information reports around police misconduct, you really saw how really tragic incidents like the Laquan McDonald murder were things that happened on a, on, on a, a decade basis um, where you have a huge high profile incident that captures the attention of the entire city and then some. You have some sort of blue ribbon commission that gets convened. Uh, they put out a series of recommendations and then just collects dust. Thankfully, we had a Department of Justice under President Obama that said, no, we're going to do things differently. We're going to come in, do an investigation. They issued a huge report, top to bottom, soup to nuts, outlining all the problems that were endemic in the police department. Uh, training, supervision, discipline, officer mental health and wellness, how we track and manage data. And as a result, um, they issued a set of, of recommendations, but couldn't bring that across the finish line because President Trump came into office. He and his attorney general sessions said, actually, we, we think that police reform is the exact wrong approach to take here. We think that it's the police departments that are, are under siege by the community, not the other way around. And so thankfully, my former boss, Lisa Madigan, stepped in and in our office, really finished the work that the Obama administration was doing with regard to police reform. And so my reason to run in a big uh, animating feature for how I spend my time on city council is I think that we need a council that's active and engaged on issues around public safety and policing, just like folks expect them to be when it comes to road abatement, garbage collection, filling potholes and trimming trees, that we can do both of those things simultaneously. We need that to happen. Um, and it's been a real privilege working on those issues, but also, as I'm sure we're going to get into, uh, profoundly frustrating as well. All right. Well, I'm encouraged by hearing what you say. I've been one of my problems with the city council is their total lack of engagement. Well, two things. One, their inability to connect the impact of their votes on financial issues to the circumstances in these communities that are causing the crime and violence. Now, that lack of accountability bug has driven me nuts forever. But also, it seems like it, I'm sure it's politically expedient to leave the misconduct and the blame for police misconduct at the feet of the police accountability system. Right. And, but I think legislators have a role to play. You are given oversight on there. So you can make laws that affect the activities or restrain the activities of the police department, but it's not something I've ever seen the city council being um, really having any desire to do that. Yeah. And it's a really sad feature 
of our, our city council historically, that's in the process of changing. It's not changing as quickly as I'd like it to, but look, you got to walk before you can run in some ways. And so when we're looking at some of the things that we're taking up, reforms to the gang database, um, reforms to how police overtime is structured, COPA and the ways in which they close out misconduct investigations much too early um, so that they can move on to the next one in no small part because they're underfunded, then of course the consent decree and finally issues around CPAC and GAP and civilian oversight, we know what those next steps are. We, in many of those situations, have introduced and and revised legislation to bring about that sort of systemic change that people expect that they need, um, that they've been demanding for years now, if not decades, with some of these issues. And so I think we've reached this inflection point. Are we going to go down the same old path where whoever the mayor is in this situation, Mayor Lightfoot, gets to dictate exactly what's going to happen, soup to nuts? Or are we going to really embrace a more democratic approach where the 50 older people, um, including the chair of the public safety committee, will be working collaboratively with one another, with the mayor's office. And this is a critical part with the community as well, because both CPAC and GAPA are community-driven organizations. Their recommendations, the, the framework that both of those ordinances are envisioning are very much community-driven of, by, and for the community. And it's critical that we continue to keep that in mind as we're working not just with some of these issues, but all across the board, affordable housing, environmental justice, uh, the city's finances, that we chart that new approach that allows a more small D democratic voice to really ring true when it co- and, and animate the discussions and decisions that we're making as a city council. So when you entered the city council two years ago, did you feel there was enough support at that time within the city council as a, as a body, within the 50 aldermen, to pass some version of this community council at that point? Absolutely. And and that's not changed a single day since I, I've been in office. Um, both of those ordinances, when you put them together, CPAC and GAPA, it gets you to, in terms of co-sponsors, gets you to that supermajority that you need to pass this sort of legislation. Because one of the little quirks is because both of them, thankfully, envision an elected component. Um, it requires pursuant to state statute a supermajority. You don't need just that bare majority of 26 votes. You need 34. And that's where Oof. having a be uh, supportive and opposition to it or on the sidelines can really make that difference because I think clearly that 26 folks, it's always been there. I feel the same way about 34, but when you have a mayor kind of start to twist arms, that's where it becomes um, a little bit more challenging to move things forward. But at the end of the day, I think folks, they've, they've heard from the community. We've all been on council enough, even those of us who've just been there for two years. We know what those next steps are. We know that we need to pass the strongest possible version of civilian oversight. We have these two coalitions that are working very closely with one another over the last several weeks to work out a compromise. And at the end of the day, I'm confident that the votes are going to be there to pass something that's going to be transformational in Chicago, but also be that sort of guiding light for what um, cities, both big and small around the country, should be looking to when it comes to civilian oversight of the police department. So I guess I'm going to, this is a two, kind of a two part question, but you answered the last question the same way. So I'm going to ask it is like, was there, are there city council members that are, there must be, um, that are outright against any kind of civilian commission? 
And what are their, do they, have they given you reasons why they're against it? So there are several um, who are not supportive of it. Um, And at the end of the day, I think the goal is to get to 34 votes. So when someone tells you, look, this this just isn't going to get my vote for X, Y, and Z reasons. And I think at this point, a lot of it's just big picture issues. Should there be an entity at all? Should anyone other than the mayor um, have a say um, in things like policymaking um, when it comes to revising policies in the wake of things like, for example, the awful raid that Anjanette Young had to endure. Um, When we're talking about hiring and firing the COPA administrator, the police superintendent, what sort of budget floor should be in place to ensure that any entity that's set up isn't set up to fail because its budget is, 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 is too small. These are the sorts of things that I think the vast majority of council has support over. So ultimately, are we going to pass something that's going to get 50 votes? No, but I don't think we want that because at the end of the day, that's going to be such a watered down version that it's not going to be worth the the paper that it's printed on. So again, we have a significant supermajority of folks who are ready to move forward. We need to get that hearing. We need to get that vote. And I'm confident we're going to be able to do that quickly. Okay. So the question begs then, is it the supermajority issue for why, um, despite our mayor saying, um, that uh, while she was a candidate saying, hey, we're going to pass this in my first 100 days. Here we are, and we're approaching 720, 730 days. We're approaching the two-year mark. Oh, it's still a month or two, a couple months away from that. But why hasn't this passed? What, is it the supermajority issue or something else going on for why one of these hasn't passed yet? It's not the supermajority issue. The, the votes are there. Um, we we know where this ordinance is going to land at the end of the day. Um, there might be some minor things that we'll need to tweak before a final substitute is introduced, but uh, the, the big issues have been dealt with. Um, and it's been reported that when there was a hearing scheduled and a vote that was going to take place last month in February, that, that the mayor had asked Chairman Talia Farrell to hold off um, as she put together her own in- ordinance to introduce we, it, it remains unclear what the substance of that is. Um, I've, I've not seen a copy. I've not spoken with anyone else in city government who's seen a copy, so we're waiting. But look, at the end of the day, we were poised to take a vote. Uh, my understanding was the votes were there. Um, but that was delayed at the mayor's request. And I'm hopeful that um, the courtesy that Chairman Talia Farrell gave her in order to put together her own ordinance is, is one that would extend for a month. And that with all of us knowing what we're prepared to vote on, that we can have that up or down vote later this month. I got to say, I'm not. They've been working on this ordinance for five years. And I know Mayor Lightfoot. I know her personally. I worked with her on these issues before she became mayor. I, I would be, if I was EPAC and GAPA, I would be pretty aggravated for working on this for five years, almost six years. And um, at the last minute getting, when you know you have the votes to pass one of them, getting the mayor to just step in and say, no, I'm going to come up with my own. Um, let's stop this. That would... I can just say it from my perspective, would, would, would have really um, been bad. And it's, it's a very much a move that I would have expected out of Richie Daly or Rahm Emanuel. So when you run as a reformer, these things should not be happening, in my opinion. Um, 
but I can say that without any worries. So I saw on your website, because you have a legislation section, which I like, um, you can look up stuff that you've either sponsored or co-sponsored, that you were a co-sponsor on both the CPAC and GAPA ordinances. Was there a reason why you didn't choose one over the other to sponsor? So several reasons. One is there are significant portions of the 47th Ward that have reached out to my office saying, please support this ordinance. I've been working on this. Um, There are a number of coalition members who are residents who have been working in the trenches on these ordinances and police reform more generally for years. And knowing that rarely is it the case that the version that is introduced gets passed ultimately. I, I thought it appropriate to signal my strong support that we pass the strongest possible version. Um, there are parts of both uh, initial versions of both CPAC and GAPA that I liked, folks, portions of both that I thought maybe weren't calibrated in an ideal way, but I'm one of 50 folks and I think it's important for us to signal when, when there is an issue that's worth taking up. And that's part of how I view being a co-sponsor to encourage other colleagues that this is something that we need to take up, we need to take a close look at, that we ultimately need to pass. And I think you can see um, the merits of both of those ordinances and confirmation that both of those coalitions were spending their time appropriately on critical issues by the fact that they they are very close to reaching a compromise. And I'm hopeful that they'll reach that. Um, But at the end of the day, we'll we'll hopefully take up the strongest possible version of something that can pass city council. But but both of them were very strong starting points. I thought in respect for what the substance was of those two ordinances, the process that led both of those ordinances to be introduced, as well as the strong community support that I was hearing from both ordinances, that it would be appropriate for me to lend my name to both. All right. I um, I was actually kind of surprised that wasn't a typical Chicago move. Um, when I saw the legislation, I wanted to see, um, I looked at your website today and I was like, that's not a typical Chicago move for an alderman to put uh, their name on both those ordinances. So I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, we're going to show an image of, um, from CPAC's website about the powers between GAP and CPAC, at least. And ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, I don't know when they made this, and this has been going on for five years, so this image could be four years old, and there could be powers that are in both of them now. But I wanted to ask you, Alderman, what powers do you believe are essential for this community Mm -hmm. commission or community council, whatever it is? What powers do you think are essential for them to have? Mm -hmm. There are several. There are several critical um, aspects that I understand both of them and their most recent substitutes are really getting close to. Um, So one would be ensuring that uh, a, a civilian body have the final say when it comes to policy creation, that they should and hopefully will be working closely with um, the city council, the mayor's office, community groups. But at the end of the day, that's the entity that has final say. By the way, that entity already exists. It's the police board. Pursuant to their ordinance, they have final say over policymaking. They just haven't exercised it for decades, if ever. Um, <laughs> so that's one. Second, we need to make sure that, especially when it comes to the removal of folks like the police superintendent and the COPE administrator, that the commission and city council have a role to play. Um, so when you're thinking about a situation where a vote of no confidence can be taken, for example, which is something that um, GAPA currently envisions, and then if a majority of the commission members say, yeah, we express a vote of no confidence with regard to the police superintendent, that it's then up to the city council to take up that issue. 
um, in terms of whether they want to concur with that. I think that's that's very critical. I'd also say, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the funding piece is a really, really important one. We want to make sure, just like COPA, and just like the inspector general's office, that there's a budget floor that represents what we think is the, uh, an adequate, maybe not ideal, but an adequate funding level um, that, that, that city council and the mayor's office are not going to go below in subsequent budget negotiations. Because at the end of the day, like we're seeing with COPA, if it, you need that budget floor in place, and you need to make sure that there are as few vacancies as possible, because there are going to be times where the system is strained like it was uh, following the protests and the civil unrest last summer. And we're really struggling to keep pace with expectations from the community about investigating those alleged incidents of misconduct quickly because we have too many vacancies, because we don't have enough investigators who can take a thorough and timely look at those issues. So those are three of the critical components that I want to make sure we see. And then finally is ensuring that there's an elected component. Uh, CPAC currently envisions a directly elected component. The folks who sit on the commission are directly elected by members of the public. GAPA envisions uh, one step in between where you have um, a, a group of folks all across the city, district councils, and then they get together and then have a say in who's going to serve on that commission. So that's one of the things that uh, the two coalitions are working out and hoping to receive a compromise and, and to achieve a compromise. But those are four critical components. Again, policymaking authority, hiring and firing of the superintendent and COPE administrator, the budget floor, and then how this directed elected, directly elected uh, process is going to work. All right. Once again, we're in agreement. And I will say, I can't tell you, we tried to fight for a bigger budget for COPA. We really strongly, I was in those offices in the Corp Council. I was in those meetings in the Corp Council's offices. We fought and fought and fought. And it just drives me crazy when I hear Chicago officials talk about money. It drives me absolutely batty. This costs too much. This costs too much. At that point, we had $660 million going into the TIFs. And you're worried about an extra $20 million for COPA. And by the way, if COPA does their job well, it makes the community relationship with the police that much better. What does that price tag cost? But whenever you're talking about police accountability and support for communities, it's always how much does it cost? You see this on the national level and you see this on the local. How much does it cost? Really? How much are you paying for all those cranes in the loop that you're supplying with TIF money? That has always driven me nuts. You know, you talk about the Anjanette Young case. Well, we're not done with that. She didn't file a complaint right away. So obviously, Copa wasn't going to be able to do anything until the suit was filed. But the suit was filed. And then six months later, the investigation is still going on. Are you kidding me? How is that possible? Yeah. We have 1.7 billion for the police. Mm -hmm. Those are really important points. And I was going to say, um, we, we, we don't often hear a lot of scrutiny coming from elected officials uh, around the budgets of different departments, including the police department, but we should. Because budget reflects our values. And so if we have an, in, entities like COPA that don't have the requisite funding, that don't have the requisite personnel, then we're never going to be able to gain the trust of folks that our system needs to ensure that all of our public safety institutions are working in the ways that we want them to. Um, so we can find that money in terms of uh, you know the, the $4 billion, $5 billion corporate fund budget um, that you see in any given period. Um, the, the money is there. It's just a matter of whether we want to have that budget better reflect our values. I would also say if COPA and other entities are doing their job better, especially from an accountability standpoint, 
what are we spending less money on? Police misconduct lawsuits, right? Yes. We're spending upwards of $100 million annually on that. So when you're talking about identifying problematic issues, systems as well as individuals nipping that in the bud as opposed to waiting for a situation like a Jason Van Dyke murdering Juan McDonald, that is an that goes to the importance of things. And then finally, I wanted to note something you said about Miss Young, which is there was actually a duty for all the officers involved there, uh, as well as the supervisors, to, uh, to, to essentially say, I'm going to raise my hand about the fact that something bad happened here. They were duty-bound to notify BIA, Bureau of Internal Affairs, or COPA, or some other entity to say something improper happened here. That, to my knowledge, has not happened. That's what's been communicated to us by CPD in a recent subject matter hearing on the topic. So it's not the case that we need to wait for complainants to come forward in this situation, Miss Young, in order for transparency and accountability to happen. That should have happened years ago. And to your point, the fact that even after that video has been released, we're still waiting for COPA to finalize its investigation just speaks to the fact that we're not top system of bad apples. We're talking about real structural deficiencies that we need to um, really reform at a very fundamental level. And that's something that, that civilian oversight is meant to help do. It is. And um, until there's repercussions up of the chain, right? And I like what the Illinois legislature did um, with making, if you turn off your body camera on purpose, it could be a felony. If you knowingly file a false police report on purpose and, or you allow that to happen, you know, one of your colleagues is doing it and you just turn another way, it could be a felony. I think that is the start of where we need to be down the road um, because it's it's clear and we have hundreds and hundreds of examples. The CPD is not going to reform itself and those officers are not going to turn each other in. And everyone says, oh my God, you think all cops are bad? I don't, but I know the good cops won't turn in the bad ones. And that's the problem. And I don't know what we have to do in the system. And maybe it's make not reporting a felony, but something's got to break that wall of silence to make the officers do it. Because you're right, there were all those officers on the scene and they didn't do anything. A couple of weeks ago, we had Jonathan Bellew um, on our show. He's a freelance journalist. He was out during the protests and he's suing right now the police department. He got pepper sprayed for no reason. Um, the crowd was calm. He had his media credentials and he got pepper sprayed right in the face. Did an officer say anything or do anything or report it? No, they didn't. When he went to another office said, hey, what the hell's going on? He goes, I didn't do it to you. What do you want? And until that attitude changes, I don't I, I, I don't see us getting as far as we need to. Let me just put it that way. Okay. Um, do you expect or have you felt any pressure um, or do you expect there to be pressure by the mayor to vote for her version of the ordinance? I anticipate that there will be a lobbying campaign from the mayor's office <laughs> to support it, but we're still waiting on it. I, I haven't seen a version. I don't know what the key elements are. I, I don't know how it compares to DAPA and CPAC. So I think that, that, Courtesy goes both ways, right? Chairman Talia Farrell said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll allow another month to move forward to allow the administration to put forth its own version. Well, we've been, we've been sitting on two very strong versions already. We might be able to reach consensus. 
we, we need to see that as quickly as possible, be able to ask questions and do the work of legislators, do the work that our constituents elected us to do. Um, will, I, I, I'm sure that the administration will have their own perspective. Clearly, they're not supportive of either CPAC or DAPA in their current forms, but it's important for us to do our jobs. And it just shouldn't be the case that with significant issues like this, that any one person, who, no matter who they are, have, have the primary responsibility for creating policy, ushering it through city council, executing it, and fixing problems uh, as they invariably will arise. That's too much to ask of any one person, especially when they're responsible for a city of 2.7 million people. So we have this system of checks and balances. City council has been doing its job. Um, it's There have been some fits, stops and starts, but we're, we're working through that. And again, that's why I think it's my hope and expectation that we're going to take up um, a strong version of civilian oversight by the end of this month. Okay, uh, a couple of political questions before I let you go. Is the city council as constituted right now independent enough of the mayor to pass the consensus, let's say they come to a consensus gap in CPAC, is the council independent enough to pass that without the mayor's and, and, and not pass the mayor's version? I, I, I'd like to think so, but let's see what that version looks like um, to see what, what, at the end of the day, what are the sort of issues that are going to comprise those differences between compromise if we're able to reach one and what uh, the administration is going to be proposing. Uh, one of the things that I have found um, is that many of my colleagues are open-minded. Um, they're very, very um, astute individuals when we're able to uh, spend time on these issues because we're pulled in a million directions, just like elected officials are everywhere else. But we have this opportunity now to focus our attention on what the strongest possible version is going to be. And I do think that you have a super majority of folks who are committed to passing that right now. All right. I have one last question for you, Alderman, uh, which is, when do you think the public safety is going to pass this? Are we talking a month, six months, or never? So Once never is not an option, uh, clearly, and six months is too long. We've, we've been waiting too long as it is. I, I, I expect that we'll be in a position to pass a very strong version of civilian oversight at the end of this month, and I hope that happens. May it, could it take another month? That's within the realm of possibility. I'm not going to say with 100% certainty that we're definitely going to pass something at the end of this month, but we've laid the foundation for that to happen. All right, wonderful. I hope you're right. It's about time. Someone's got to get that message to the mayor. All these communities have done all this work. We can't let it go to waste. All right, Alderman Martin, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. All right. Thanks again, Alderman Martin. Really appreciate you taking the time. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to move on to our next segment. I've got a couple of segments left for you here. And the first one that I want to talk about, and it underlies a big problem um, around police accountability, is a story that made it out. There was a, uh, I think there's an image we have for you. It's basically of this private party in a south, south or southwest side bar. Um, the 
city inspectors eventually go there and a bunch, there's like 20 or 30 or 40 officers that are packed um, in this restaurant without any um, um, protective gear against all the regulations by the city. And it turns out it's a politically connected. And I think if I read uh, Cass right, it's a politically connected mom, mob-ish related bar. Um, and one of the people was a party for someone who had been on the force for 20 years. And honestly, I don't remember the officer's name because it's not relevant to what I'm talking about here. But the, the command, I think he was a commander, there's gonna, they open an investigation into him and into the bar and all the officers that are there. And he does what you can do after 20 years, which is resign. People have to understand that when they say we're opening an investigation on you, that is typically an HR function within the city, within the Chicago Police Department, right? That's what the police accountability system is. It's an HR system. It's about whether or not you're going to lose your job. Now, by resigning and basically re resigning, he retired. And after 20 years, you can retire, sign a piece of paper, you're out. And that removes you from um, the grasp more or less, you get out of the grasp or, um, of the police accountability system. And somehow that makes sense because it's like, oh, it's an HR system that totally makes sense. But here's where the problem is. This officer now can't really be compelled to give a statement to COPA or BIA, Bureau of Internal Affairs, or COPA, Citizen Office of Police Accountability, because he's no longer an employee. He can't really, really be uh, propelled to give a statement, right? Because it's an HR investigation. This is a big problem. This gets into misconduct, to all kinds of misconduct, um, beyond this simple, ridiculous thing that was going on here. When you're talking about physical misconduct, they can just resign after the, they can resign at any point. But if after you're 20, you resign and protect your pension. Because if you get fired, you can lose your pension, right? So they resign, they keep their pension. This, that's, this is a big flaw, in the, how this police accountability system is set up. We need to make this, and I've talked to the mayor about this uh, directly, not while she's been mayor, but prior when she was uh, police board president uh, Lightfoot. And, um, and we were working together on trying to pass the legislation that would become COPA and would become uh, the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General's office. Their pensions need to be um, connected to um, and obligate them in participating in future accountability um, investigations that involve their on-the-job activities or the on-the-job activities of any police officer, right? Period. This way, this commander cannot run, run away, take his, his or her pension. I think it was a man, but I'm not 100% sure. His or her pension, run away, resign, and get out of the grip and take whatever information they have about the misconduct and never have to worry about divulging it unless a criminal investigation comes in the state's attorney or the feds come in and subpoena them. We, we shouldn't have to wait for it. The public shouldn't have to wait for it. You're committing to honoring the badge, honoring the rules, you should be free to resign any time you want. You should be free to take your pension, but your pension should be obligated to you being um, engaging in and participating in any internal investigations around your, your job performance or the performance of any other officer, period. And that would stop this, uh, this hiding 
shielding themselves from misconduct allegations and misconduct investigations. And I also think to some degree, although I'm not 100% sold on it right now, that if you're involved in conduct that would have gotten you fired and an investigation pursues and you are you resign or you retire and you and especially if you retire you resign and you don't get a pension it's not we can do but if you resign and take your pension and the subsequent investigation uh is completed and you are found to have engaged in misconduct and you're terminated you should still be able to lose your pension it's a bottom line there's a grave responsibility that you get when you agree to take that gun and those powers, and part of that has to be you cannot run and hide from investigations. This is the bottom line. Um, this way, they would not be able to run and hide and keep that information secret from the public. Um, that's a change that will probably be proposed in our forthcoming legislative agenda um, report, which is being worked on between co uh, combination of the Chicago Justice Project and about five or six or six or seven uh, volunteers and interns through our CJP Nation, which we're meeting in about 45 minutes. And if you go through the comments in uh, whatever platform you're watching this, you can get the link and uh, join us tonight. So um, on to our last segment, which is um, a, um, I think we have an image for it, the Chicago Alderman. Um, I believe it's Jeanette Taylor, and I believe it's the 20th Ward. Um, okay. Chicago talking about um, talking about how she's being pressured by district commanders in her ward to use her menu, what's called menu money, which is like a million or a million and a half dollars aldermen are given, and it's basically um, figuratively given, right? Doesn't actually, don't actually possess it, but it's basically they're allowed to um, dictate what repairs and updates in the ward are, are done with a million and a half dollars of the city budget that is specifically spent on their ward. This is streets, this is sidewalks, this is cutting trees, might be a little bit of park work. Um, it's those types of things, potholes, right? And basically the story is about how this alderman in the 20th ward is being pressured by the police district commanders, the district commanders in her ward, to use the money to buy license plate readers and to buy cameras, police, you know, police cameras for the ward. And she kind of protested. And I've got to tell you, I agree. I, I think this is ridiculous. I understand there's an upsurge in carjackings. I understand that to some degree or another, the police department is rather powerless to stop it. I get it. But the reality is that that menu money needs to go to things that are actually uh, community improvements. Now you're saying, hey, reducing carjackings would be community improvement. Ladies and gentlemen, we spend, or the Chicago, city of Chicago spends, close to $1.7 billion on policing. And now they're trying to push aldermen to spend more menu money, more money per ward on additional tools for them because they weren't able to do it with $1.7 billion. So I think she said it was $35,000. So let's just do that 35,000 times 50. That's a lot of money a year. 
And it's a lot of money that can go fix things that people deal with in their communities every day. Um, I'm sorry, the police district commanders should not be doing this. It should be going, if they need these things, they got to go through normal budget procedures, period. I'm sorry, they have to find a way to afford it in the $1.6 or $1.7 billion. Um, it's it's a pretty ridiculous thing um, that district commanders are going out and saying, we don't have enough money. I'm sorry, we just don't have enough money. Um, so we're going to pressure you into this. Now, the flip side of this, ladies and gentlemen, is that's saying the 20th Ward or in any other word, let's say in the 47th word, Alderman Martin, if he doesn't get, doesn't buy those cameras and doesn't buy the license plate readers that they want, and I would argue that license plate readers to some extent should be unconstitutional um, and certainly are a humongous invasion of privacy still determining, especially you'd have to look at what information they're collecting. But why, why if, 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 if there is this rash of carjackings in his ward, the police district commanders are going to leak it or certainly have the ability to leak it. Hey, we tried to get more uh, cameras and license plate readers. If only the alderman, you know, committed to keeping his ward safe by getting us the tools we need because the $1.7 billion isn't enough. It's ridiculous. And it's really... Um, it's really sad, but this is, um, but on this note, let me talk about, before I let you go, when again, once again, we have the, um, the CJP Nation meeting in 41 minutes. You can get the Zoom link for it um, in the chat, but also just a reminder what's coming up the rest of this weekend and the next, in the coming weeks. Friday, Mick Dumpke from ProPublica, Illinois, talking about the murder. Chicago didn't want to solve a recent article by him. It's fascinating about, I think, an assassination of um, a black politician in the early 1960s. Monday, the officer support system designed by the Chicago Crime Lab. We have Bob Boyk, Executive Director, CPD's Office of Constitutional Policing and Reform. Dylan Fitzpatrick and Maddie Goodrich from the USC Crime Lab talking about how this will help and impact supposedly uh, police officers. Let's hope it does that. Monday, the 22nd, 49th Ward Alderman Maria Haddon talking about the Anginut. Young Ordinance. Wednesday, 324, 20th Ward Alderman, Jeanette Taylor, talking about the issue that I just ended with the last segment, getting pressured to use menu money to purchase cameras and license plate readers. So that is what's coming up on the Chicago show, Chicago Justice show coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, if you want a topic covered or have suggestions for the show and guests, please drop us a line at infoshicagojustice.org, our Facebook page, our Twitter page. Hit us up at any of that, and we will um, we will take it into consideration. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for being here, and I will see you uh, Friday, 530 Central, with Mick Dunkey from ProPublica, Illinois.